Well, good morning. So there's a saying that it goes back quite an old ways. Uh, fortune favors the bold. You've probably heard it, right? Or fortune favors the brave or the strong. It's, it's written a number of different ways in Latin, and it can be translated any number of ways. And it seems to have been penned first in 200 B.C. or thereabouts. No, a lot of the old literature, no one really knows where these things come from. And you've probably heard it because it's been quoted in poems and epics and movies and everything else ever since. But the idea of fortune favors the bold or the brave or the strong really is a, it's an anti-Christian phrase for various reasons. Part of it is because the word fortune there is a god, or a, in this case a goddess in the, the Greco-Roman world. And so their belief there is she is working with you, and if you are bold, she will jump in and help you do whatever you need to do. She will favor you. She favors the bold. She favors the strong. She favors the brave. Now, you might be wondering, why are we starting with a, a Latin phrase that has nothing to do with Christianity this morning? Well, you've probably heard it in its American phrase later on. We've twisted it just a little bit to sound a little bit more Christian, but you've heard it as, God helps those who help themselves. And it's this consistent phrase that, that has been working throughout all of history, partly because of the reality of Romans 1, 18 through 32 that you guys shared and talked about last week, but partly also just because we are so consumed with our own everything that we just think, if I just do what I want to do, God will come along and help me do it. That's, that's how it works. And so I've even heard this phrase in Christian churches. I, I've, I've had brothers and sisters in Christ over the years share this with me. As I say something like, I'm very passionate about church planting, or I'm passionate about Jesus, they say, yes, God helps those who help themselves. No, uh, let's, let's be careful with how we say this and how we do this. Now, to bring this very personal, and if you'll allow me this morning, I'm going to share a little bit about myself, just because we don't know each other, and it, it's helpful for you to get to know me a little bit. It actually is less helpful for me so that you get to know me a little bit, because as you get to know me, you'll find out that maybe I shouldn't be here preaching this morning, but uh, alas, we'll try and we'll, we'll work with it anyway. For example, one of those stories of, of you know, favoring the bold, as a teenager and into my early internship days at Park Hills, I was known for being the guy who, if just prompted correctly, might do something ridiculous. And so years ago, a number of youth leaders and myself uh, we went down to Dallas, Texas, to a youth workers convention, not unlike the, the conference that your pastors just attended this week. And so we learned how to be good youth pastors and good youth workers. And as we walked into the lobby of this massive convention center, since it was Dallas, since it's Texas, there was a 35-foot statue of a bucking bronco with a large cowboy on top of it who was going like this. The problem was there was no large cowboy on the statue. It was just the Bucky Bronco with the saddle. And I thought, you know what that statue needs? It needs a, it needs a cowboy. It needs somebody that's going to take care of this. And so as I walked in, I thought, this is great. And one of my friends who came along on the trip with us, he was one of our youth leaders. And he said to me, you know what that statue needs? I said, a cowboy. He said, exactly. And I, go, I, just, I know just the guy. So I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. And I kicked off my flip-flops and I ran and I jumped on the statue and I took the pose, they snapped a picture, and as I looked out on the crowd from my angle, 15 feet above the crowd that was gathering all of these youth workers, 
I watched individuals with earpieces start to convene on my location. And I'll tell you, my boldness immediately disappeared and dissipated. I took my step back from the statue, climbed down, and shimmied into the crowd to disappear and evade all capture. Right? All right. So, but as I, as I went away, I, I thought it to myself, I wonder why I do some of the things that I do. And what I want to talk about this morning is a problem that we all have. And it, it ties into fortune favors the bold. It ties into our sense of glorious purpose, whether it's accurate or not. The problem that we face is, as, well, hopefully as followers of Jesus, but as humans in general, is we often find boldness in the wrong things. Some of us have found boldness in the last couple of years due to our political stances. Some of us have found boldness because of our, our hope that the world is just going to become a better place. Some of us have found boldness in an, some type of anti-Christian rhetoric that we've bought into. and We find boldness in the wrong things all the time. And even sometimes Christians find boldness in some of the wrong things. And so this morning, if you'll allow me, we're going to walk through just a couple of verses in Romans, which I know you've already covered in part, but... I think there's, there's something here for us to unpack and to think about. And so let's pray together and ask God to lead us in his word this morning. Father, so often when I read in Scripture that foolishness is one of the words that's used of human beings, I am the chief among all sinners. And Father, I know that many of us feel the same way. God, when we look at you and your holiness and your righteousness and who you are, it's hard not to feel foolish. It's hard not to see your perfection and think that we will never live up to that, that we will never be able to even give you what you deserve. What type of gift can we give the creator of all things? So, Father, when we peer upon your glory and your beauty our desire is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, Father, too often we end up just becoming bold in the wrong things. And so, Father, we come to you this morning asking you to lead us, that, that your spirit would guide us through the word that was inspired by that same spirit. That these words, which are the very will of God and given to us so that we might understand what your son has done for us and understand what your will is for us, Father, and as we listen to your spirit guide us day by day, Lord, we ask for your, your guidance, we ask for your, your mercy. And Father, we plead with you this morning as we walk into this text that you would illuminate your text in our hearts, that you'd show us what you want us to see, that you'd even help me to step out of the way and allow your word to speak clearly. And so we pray this in your son's name, amen. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, verses that you're well acquainted with by now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here, just at first glance, this, this, this could really be the key verse of the New Testament, right? I mean, or the key verse of maybe the entire idea of Scripture, this, the idea of 
Words like gospel and righteousness and faith. How is that not the story of Scripture? Adam and Eve didn't believe in the moment they were supposed to. They didn't trust. Abraham does, but so often doesn't live up to where, what he should do or who he should be. Moses, at times, blows us away with his faith and at times leaves us utterly wanting something else. But righteousness is this continued pattern that keeps working through Scripture, and we keep asking for one who's going to come, who's going to fix the problem for us, and we know the answer is Jesus. And we see it lived out in the church. And so at first glance, you can understand why so many organizations and, and others have used Romans 1.16 as their, their verse, their, their life verse. So maybe, maybe it's your life verse in here. You just think, yes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to live it out. I'm going to be that. So many have tied this verse to something Jesus says in the Gospels of, of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. Let me read for you what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9 verse 26, and you'll see the connection almost instantaneously. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see the connection, right? This idea of us lacking shame or or not being ashamed of the very words of Jesus. So really, this first section here, this first part of this first verse, we are to lack shame when it comes to Christ and his words. Some of us attach that idea to boldness, just us being bold. I've heard for years, be bold with your faith, right? Go share your faith with boldness. And we should, but we need to start asking the question, what does this boldness look like? And let's just start with my testimony. I I grew up in a, a family that was culturally Christian, if you'd even like to call it that. Uh, Sunday morning mass was the way to go, and I'm not throwing any stones at any branch of the Christian faith. I've met people who I would deem as evangelicals, meaning they, they are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in all branches of the faith at this point. I, I've, I've even had uh, a meeting with a, a bunch of pastors a few weeks ago where a United Methodist pastor was talking to me about his commitment to the gospel despite the fact that he's watching his denomination throw it away. And he sees himself as a missionary in his field. And I think, bless you, brother, right? There are so many like this. I've met, I've met and sat with Catholic priests who love Jesus with every bit of their being, and they believe the gospel. They know that it's true. But for my family, our faith looked a lot more like let's go to church when we want to. Let's stick our kids in a parochial Christian, or Catholic school and have them be baptized and do First Communion and First Confession and walk through all of the steps of the faith without ever actually asking the question, do you believe what you believe? And so my family, we lived in St. Louis area, and my my family is very, like I said, very culturally Catholic. And we, due to a number of circumstances, my grandfather's job changing, my father needing a new job, we moved back to the area that I was born in, uh, Forest in Illinois, Right? The cream of the crop locally. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, I know. I, I'm in enemy territory. I, sp- I spoke at uh, Stillman Valley last year, and I thought, this is not good for me. Uh, their version of Cardinal is a little different than mine. So I'm fully aware. But we moved back to Forreston, and we looked for a church. We didn't really know what we were looking for because we were culturally Christian. It's just how you do things. And that summer that we moved back, 
somebody from somewhere, I don't even know who or, what, or how this happened, they asked me to go to Shannon Baptist VBS. And so I went to Shannon Baptist and went through a VBS. And I bless the Baptists for a number of things. One of them is their, their strength when it comes to understanding the difference between heaven and hell. As an eight-year-old, however, hearing the difference of heaven and hell, uh, there was a fear in my heart. Do I really believe any of this? What, what's going to happen? And, and, and the result midweek that I learned was if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is going to save you from your sin, you're going to spend an eternity from hell. And so this choice was given to me as an eight-year-old. Would you rather go to heaven and spend an eternity with God in paradise or would you rather burn forever? Th- that choice seems pretty simple, does it not, Right? And so I said, I I want to believe in Jesus Christ. I want nothing to do with this burning sensation for an eternity. And so they took me into this dark room. It was so strange now that I look back on it. And we all prayed the prayer of salvation. And and as we did so, at one point, this this teacher in this VBS said, Chris, have you accepted this? And I said, yes, I have. And they said, would you like to stand for Christ? And we looked around the room, and we were all sitting in a circle. And I said, no, I'd, I'd rather sit. I had no idea what I was talking about, and, and I had no idea what she was talking about. And so as that started, as an eight-year-old, we started going to a local church called North Grove, just outside of Forreston. And we went here and had a great pastor named Jeff Smala who taught the gospel weekly. But even the cultural Christianity part of my family didn't really go away. And as Pastor Jeff moved to a different post Eventually, my family just really struggled, and my parents had a number of issues that had been building and building and building for years, and we had a friend named Daryl Lawler who was the youth pastor at Park Hills Evangelical Free Church. And even now, saying that name out loud, Evangelical Free Church, scares me a little bit, even as I think about it, because I had no idea what that, that just is a really long name, right? It's scary, right? And some of you have maybe heard that. I, I, for years, I've had to defend this free church that we're a part of. What does that mean? Do I have to pay anything to go here? That's not really what it means, but okay, let's talk. You know, what does evangelical mean? Well, let's, let's discuss. You know, they, they, people think it's a, it's a voting block or it's, a, it's some kind of other concept. It, it, no, it is a belief that the gospel alone is what saves. And we're committed to the word of God. And that, that is our denomination. That's who we are. And so I went to this Park Hills place for my friend's final Sunday morning service. And my parents looked at each other and said, our marriage is in trouble. Maybe this, maybe this place will help us figure it out. And so I'm eternally grateful that the Lord laid that idea on their heart. I'm saddened to say it did not fix the problems and they eventually you know, were divorced. But I met people who for the first time in my life loved Jesus all week long. And it changed me, folks. I went from a Sunday morning idea of what it meant to follow Jesus and then doing my own thing all week long to meeting people, and teenagers, mind you, who taught me how to read the, the Word of God, who taught me how to pray. And so our, our, even our times of spending the night at each other's house started with prayer and Bible and talking it through what would lead to hour-long discussions or longer into the middle of the night, and then we would go to sleep, and then we would wake up the next morning, and sometimes we would do evangelism trips throughout Freeport. We just, they were so passionate about people knowing who Jesus was that they couldn't stop themselves. And I wanted everything to do with that. They had a boldness. They had a sense of purpose. That was something that I had been missing. And so I jumped in. 
And my youth pastor became one of my mentors and, and my, eventually became my best friend, which is still strange to say and to hear. And uh, I'm still the 16-year-old kid who has no idea what he's doing and does dumb things like climb on top of a statue in the middle of Dallas, Texas. But yet my mentor is now my best friend and, and the individual who has sort of drawn me to the place that he treats me as an equal, which is strange to me. But that's my testimony, is learning that boldness doesn't always need to look like I thought it needed to look. It, boldness comes from just not being ashamed of the gospel. So let's go back to verse 16 and let's unpack this a little more. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not ashamed. So we, we talk about shame often, right? Someone might say, I, I'm bearing a lot of shame here. Or maybe you're thinking of, uh, you know, the, the interchange with Joseph McCarthy a number of years ago where it was said to him, have you no sense of decency, sir, right? That idea of decency, of shame, of guilt, that you should feel ashamed about something whether you're rude to people or whether you bear some type of mark or, or, or you're just so sinful or you're something that just doesn't look like you. That's what we usually associate shame with, right? Shame to us usually is something of, I don't want to tell somebody this secret that I have. And in that sense, that translation of that word is perfect because so often I meet Christians who are afraid to tell people that they love Jesus Christ with all their heart. And, and I was one of them for a number of years. In fact, as my testimony continued on, eventually, uh, the summer of my, between my senior and my freshman year, when I went to Moody Bible Institute, I needed a job, needed to pay for school. And so my mom, who worked at this little place in Mount Morris called Kebacor, maybe you've heard of it, uh, she had a job in the office, and she said, you know what, you should work the line. That was the worst summer of my life, folks. Worst summer of my, I have never hated paper more than I hated paper after that experience. But so often on this line of, you know, of, of putting scholastic uh, book order things into machines and walking down the line and messing it up more often than not, all of these workers would ask me, what are you doing here? And I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that. I was a little bit hesitant to say, I'm here to make money so that I can go to Bible school. And over and over again, I found myself that summer struggling with, what is this going to look like when you step out into the real world, Chris? Are you going to be bold? Are you going to be willing to tell people what you really believe? Or are you going to maintain some sense of shame? The problem, though, with using words like ashamed here is typically we bear shame for the things that we don't want anyone to know. And usually we don't want anyone to know because those things are so negative that we know it will tarnish our reputation. The problem is the only reason why we would need to lack shame for the gospel and why Paul would need to write this here is because we live in a world that is a Romans 1, 18 through 32 world. The whole world has so given up on what God is all about. They all believe whatever they want to believe. And they've run their own way and God has given them over to what they want, as was so well preached last week, that we feel a sense of shame because we don't fit in. We're strangers in a strange land. And so the reason why Paul would even need to use this word, I am not ashamed, is because he knows that you're going to feel the struggle and I'm going to feel the struggle. We're all going to feel the struggle of just telling people what we really believe. It's going to be foolishness to people. 
at the time of, of Paul, that foolishness was that fortune is not real. She will not help you. She does not do what you want her to do. Today, it would be just to flippantly throw around a word like God. God helps those who help themselves, or God loves everybody. And those things are fractionally true, because we can take God's word and we can twist it to make it say what we want it to say. But we just throw around these things as if they're, they're flippant realities. But then when you get to the nitty-gritty and you explain that you believe the gospel and you believe the Bible to be true and to be legit, people will heap shame upon you. But the big difference here between the shame that we're used to feeling and the shame that we feel of the gospel is there's reason to feel shame about the things we normally feel shame about. But I almost feel bad that Paul even has to say that this is something that we would be ashamed of because there is nothing to be ashamed of to put our hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? If it is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, then there's nothing for us to be ashamed of. And what the gospel tells us over and over again throughout the the whole story of Scripture is that God desires a family. He desires co-laborers, partners, and I don't know why. I, I, I've struggled with this question for years. People come to me and they say, okay, so God can do anything. Yes. God is all-powerful. Yes. God can create whatever he wants. Yes. God did so by speaking. Yes. And, and it, every question they ask is yes. And they say, then why would God want to work with us? I don't know. I really don't. This is one of the struggles that I have often. Even part of the reason why I sometimes feel shame about the gospel is I don't feel like I deserve to preach it. I don't feel like I deserve to tell anybody about it because I look at it and I go, it's so beautiful and glorious what God has done for us. But I know me. Just last week, I had a student come up to me and say, you are my favorite preacher. And I said to them, please be very careful with that statement. I'm going to let you down someday. And when I say that, people step back and they immediately scoff as there's some kind of scandal coming or something because we've seen too many of our brothers and sisters fail in that regard. I don't even mean that. I just mean if you build a human up, they're going to let you down because they do. And part of what hopefully people see in me isn't that I have any value to give. It's that Christ is working through me and in me in a way that I can't explain. I don't know why he wants to work with me, and so therefore I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of telling people I'm a total failure. And Jesus loves me anyway. And I'm a total failure who has no right to be up on, uh, on this stage today, yet Christ has compelled me to do so, and I'm not ashamed of that. I lack shame. And so another way that you could almost translate this passage would not so much be, I am not ashamed. That's the negative. And, and, and just to be honest, that's the clearest translation of the Greek. Another way to say this would be, I do not lack boldness for the gospel. And I almost like that a little more because it's got a positive feel to it, right? I don't lack it. I do not lack, do not lack confidence, boldness. I know that my strength comes from the gospel and not from myself. Why? Well, because it is the power of God for salvation. When I came to the conclusion that I could not save myself, I needed someone to save me, I was actually grateful that I had to give up the fight, right? This moment where I realized I can't do it, so that's awesome. Since I know I can't, I'll give all of my hope up to someone else who can do it for me, and that's Jesus. It's his work that has saved me. It's 
his work completely that has saved me. There's no point throughout the week where I've done something so bad that suddenly God has spit me out of his mouth. And for that, I, I hold to his gospel. I trust him. I believe that he's got me, and so I'm going to walk with him to the end. Why? Well, part of that is because he has put a call on my life. I was 17 years old, and I had this, this crazy experience. It's the, and I don't even like using the word crazy there because people think other words, but I, I don't know how else to describe it. I was praying, and just God was leading me and guiding me, and I was working through Scripture, and I was thinking things, and all of a sudden, I just knew I was supposed to be a pastor. And I'll be honest with you, my first response to God was no. No, you don't understand. You made me to be something else. My grandfather was a very successful businessman. And I was like, I'd, I'd like to do that. I'll give my money to the church. Right? You know, I'll, God, I'll take care of you. Don't worry. But just let me do something else, just anything else. And I walked out of this experience and I was thinking, God, I can't believe this. No, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And I walked around the corner, and this elderly woman who was on a youth trip with us, she looked at me and she said, have you ever considered being a pastor? I'm not joking. To which I said, no, 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 no. And I walked away, and I went further. And then as I went further down the road, someone else came up to me and just said, I've been praying just now, and I really feel like, have you ever considered being a pastor? No, I haven't. I, have nothing, I want nothing to do with it. So you understand now why I went to Moody Bible Institute. I was kind of... I felt like I was forced to. I had no other option. So then I did that, and I quit after one year to marry a girl and run away from my call on ministry, and she broke up with me that summer. That was fun. And then my mentor pulled me aside and said, you have a call in your life. You need to do it. So here's a college ministry. I want you to run it. And he gave me charge of it. And then I, I ran that for a couple of years, and then a, another church in town needed a youth pastor, and they had this pretty girl that I had just met that we had started dating, and I had just proposed to, and they needed a youth pastor. And so they said to me, hey, would you ever be a youth pastor? So I left my internship at Park Hills and became a youth pastor at First Baptist in Freeport and married that girl, and we've been 17 years married and couldn't be happier, and the Lord has used us. But she is the daughter of a pastor and the granddaughter of a pastor, if you've the great Malcolm Cronk, if you've ever heard that name. Uh, he's quite famous out west, big churches. So here I am, a son of a divorced couple who came to Jesus in the basement of a church in Shannon, right, who has flunked out of, well, not really flunked out of, but left Bible school to marry a girl who broke up with him and then started working at First Baptist. They helped me finish my degree, and as I finished the end of my bachelor's, I just knew God wanted me to do more, and so I went to Trinity to get my master's, and in so doing, I started pastoring at a church in uh, Milwaukee who allowed me to drive down to Trinity and, and do my thing back and forth. Okay, so, so you've got almost the whole story at this point. That's, that's what's going on. And this call that I have on my life, I can't deny it. I can't, I have tried, folks. I have tried to run away from it. Even when I started at Trinity, they all said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go into academia. I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do pastoral ministry anymore. It's hard. It's painful. People hurt. I don't like people. I don't like the church. I'm not a big fan. I haven't quite hurt at this point in my life. I was a 20-something with a new baby at home and a wife who also was hurt by the church. And both of us were just, we're done. We're done with the whole thing. And the resume that I had had online for nine months with not a single bite 13 churches in 10 days started contacting me. God, what are you doing? 
why are you doing this to me? I don't want to do this. Now, please understand, I don't want to make any of this morning about me. I'm just telling you my story so we can get to know each other. But when you read the power of God for salvation, it's beautiful. But what it's saying is God is true to his covenantal promises. What God said he was going to do, he did. So therefore, part of the reason why we lack shame or why we don't fight boldness in our hearts about the gospel is because God's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And if you go back to the beginning of the story, the story starts with rebellion for 11 chapters. It's just terrible over and over again. And then in chapter 12, all of a sudden, Genesis 12, God chooses one person and says, I'm going to make a family from you, and that family is going to bless all of the nations of the earth. To which, if you're reading the story closely, you say, but he's 75 years old and has no children. God, are you sure you want to put all of your eggs in that basket? And God begins to work in Abraham's life, and this story begins to be told from Genesis 12 all the way to the point of the Gospels, which is why Paul says this. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Some of this is Paul's evangelism strategy. He actually went to the synagogue first, so that's part of why he says this. Part of why he says this is because God gave a miraculous family to this group of people called the Jews. And so what he's saying is God has always, for whatever reason, worked through them first and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. That would be another way to translate that word. And to the Gentile, the Gentiles are the nations. That's how the Old Testament translates that word over and over again. So the nations will be blessed by whom? From the Greek, from the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Then verse 17, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. If we believe it, if we trust it, we live it out. We live it out. And the Bible always has this connection between if you trust it, if you believe it, you will live it out. Righteousness. If you, if you believe that God is who he says he is, then you will want to do things his way. That's the connection between faith and righteousness. And so if you take this and, and converse it over the next couple of verses and you see those people didn't trust God and that's why they keep getting given over to their depraved ways over and over and over again. And folks, for a lot of us, we were living in depraved places and we had to come to a place where we did trust God and now that we've trusted him, his call on our life, his change on our life, we're moving away from who we once were. And for that, praise the Lord, right? We're different. So the point of this passage is the righteous shall live by faith and not be ashamed. So if we start with we often find boldness in the wrong places, now we move to, yes, let's find boldness in living out our faith, our righteousness before men. Let's, let's, let's live the way God wants us to live. Let's be bold in that. Let's not be ashamed of the fact that God is working through us and that the righteous shall live by faith. But we struggle in this, don't we? Yes? All the time. And 
what started with me was an anger for the church and a, and a disappointment as God put all of these churches calling my number. One of them was from Milwaukee, and my first conversation with them, I'm not joking about this, they said, why should we hire you? And my first response was, I never would hire me. I was just, I was honest, very honest. They said, well, why not? I said, I'm hurt. I don't like the church right now. I'd like to go into academia. I love God. I love God. And I love the gospel. I want to teach the gospel. I want to be a professor. I want nothing to do with the church. They're like, so then why are you talking to me right now? I said, because churches keep calling me and I'm just saying yes to like whatever God's doing. And they said, well, that's interesting. We just had a church split a few years ago. Maybe we can work on this together. And as we worked together in Milwaukee, they changed my heart and they molded me into a person who loved the church. And at the same time, they began to grow in me the passion for church planting that the free church is full of. We're not a denomination. I don't know if you knew this. We are a church planting movement. Cleverly described or, or, or you know, uh, disguised as a denomination. We have a denominational structure, sure. But what we are is we're a church planting movement. And as I was spending time with the Evangelical Free Church in Milwaukee called Redeemer Evangelical Free, my love for the free church kept growing. My, I, I became licensed in the free church, and the, the passion for church planting started to grow. And in the middle of that, uh, I was asked to write a paper on church planting for school. And I wrote this paper, and it was, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it was just very unique. It was a new, unique. In my mind, it was a unique way of planting churches. And the goal was, that I can give you like the three main points. One, cheap real estate. It's all over the place. And in Milwaukee, there are churches dead all over the place from Lutheran, Catholic, and beyond. And they're selling those buildings for a dollar. And I thought, what if? What if a church thought just about expanding and using what was once broken and redeeming it and making it beautiful again, regenerating something? Cheap real estate. I'm like, that's beautiful. But we all know that churches don't work if they don't have capable pastors. But so often, you, you folks are very, very lucky to have Pastor Bruce and Pastor Logan. They're a blessing. They're a blessing to us at our church. They're a blessing to our area. And the number of individuals that we're running with that, he, that, that Pastor Bruce shared with you a little bit ago, uh, we're, we're talking about some really interesting things in the area. And when I heard that you all were going to plant a church in Sterling, we were so excited to cross that off our list and to send you money to make sure that that happened. That's way cheaper, by the way, than, than us planting a church ourselves. It's way cheaper just to give you money to go do it yourselves. Praise the Lord. But what happened at this, in this class is we started to just talk about what church planting looked like. Cheap real estate, and we need to develop people. Pastors need, they need a network. They need people who can help each other grow and develop. And then finally, we need those pastors to use their skills and be ready to expand quickly while still holding on to the network idea. That was my paper. And so I sent it to my mentor, Pastor Mark, Mark Balmer, the lead pastor at, at Park Hills. And he was so excited about it, that's what necessitated him saying, are you ready to come home? And I said, Mark, you don't understand. I'm going to plant a church in Milwaukee. That's what we're doing. That's my next plan. And Mark said, no, 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 you're going to do this rurally. And I said, no, let's pr- no, I'm not. I'm doing it in Milwaukee. And Mark said, let's pray about it. And I prayed about it, and we compromised, and I moved to Freeport. So, uh, no, I'm just... But that's really what happened, was this idea was, let's just, let's just plant churches super fast by developing people and looking for places that we can just move really quickly into spaces that, that don't cost a lot of money. Because that's usually what bears a church down, is being overwhelmed. 
I mean, when the roof started caving in on this a few years ago, you could have felt very, very overwhelmed if insurance hadn't picked up the bill, right? That's just the reality of how this thing works. And so we get caught up in real estate and we get so bogged down by the details. And so I just started thinking it through. So my wife and I moved back. We didn't move back to Freeport. We moved back to the Winnebago Pecatonica area to plant our first campus. And we did so. We hired a young man named Graham who just has become a phenomenal campus pastor. And Graham and I planted the church together and then I handed the keys to the car to to Graham and I became uh, the executive pastor at, at Park Hills Freeport. And our goal is to look at the map that we have and think about what locations in our area have, have a dark spot. They don't have the gospel. Please understand, that doesn't mean there aren't churches there. But the gospel's not present. And that's unfortunately the reality that too many of us, if we're really looking around, you, you see the difference. And so we've got this map. Sterling was on it. It's no longer on it. Praise the Lord for you. But there's others. And I say all this because I would really struggle with being bold on this if God wasn't telling me this is what we're supposed to do. And Pastor Mark and our elder board are completely united in the fact that, yes, God wants to use whatever status God has given Park Hills Freeport to help develop young pastors and plant churches. And so we're always in negotiations with churches around the area who are dying and need pulpit supply, and so we move over and do that. Uh, we uh, are helping develop young people. I've got a, a, we don't use Rolodex anymore, but I've got a, uh, you know, a, a list of names of people that are interested in being pastors that I, I, I know would be really good, who, by the way, are committed to being rural and okay with being rural. That's a, that's a hard sell in seminaries these days. And someone who's ready to bring the gospel to a, to a location that needs the gospel. And so on our list right now, we have places like Savannah, Stockton. I'm interested in the, the, the place between Lanark and Mount Carroll. We're willing to go as far north as New Glarus, and we're looking at either partnering with or, or thinking about the west side of Rockford and anything in between that. that. That's kind of the location. That's what we're looking for. So you can pray for us in that. But the reason why I bring all this up, and this is, this is I promise we're nearing the end. The problem with my cowboy story in the beginning was I wanted to impress people, but I didn't need to. The people I was with, they loved me, no matter what. They were with me. I didn't have to climb a statue to prove that I was good at what I'm doing. And, and right now, we don't ever have to plant another church to be doing what God's called us to do. However, we're trying to be faithful with what God's called us to do. But here's the problem. If you and I struggle with boldness, this job will never get done. If you and I are ashamed of the gospel, we will never reach the communities that we live in. If our neighbors don't know that we follow Jesus Christ and proclaim him crucified, risen, and coming again, then what are we doing here? What is the point of all this? It's, it's not that you have to impress anyone, but it's that God has already started working and he's continuing to work and our righteousness is accomplished by us just faithfully doing what he's asked us to do. Whether that's coming back to Freeport or whether that's doing something else. Whatever God has called us to do, are you doing it? Are you living it out with boldness? Are you being someone that everyone around you knows who Jesus is? Or are we ashamed? Are we hiding? And if we're hiding, why are we hiding? Is it because we're afraid of what people are going to think of us? Of course they're not going to think positively of us. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but the world has given up on what God wants. We talked about this last week. And the rest of Romans will begin to unpack that even more. And as you look at this beautiful story of of faith that God has given throughout Romans, you just come to this conclusion of, God, you're amazing. Thank you so much for asking me to be a partner with you on this journey. Tell me what's next. And so we boldly share the gospel in our families first. And then we share the gospel with our neighborhoods. And we share the gospel with our communities beyond, hopefully, our state, hopefully, our nation, and then internationally. My hope, my prayer would be that you would, God would help us not to be ashamed, that he would help us be bold in the right ways. And so here's what I'll leave you with this week. First off, if the Bible tells us the righteous shall live by faith, let's live by faith. Amen? That means, folks, that we're going to treat our families in a way that honors God. It means we're going to be tender to our wives and loving to them, that we're going to say I'm sorry when we're sorry. And we're going to say I'm sorry even when we're not sorry, but we know we're wrong. It means we're going to lovingly guide our children to think about who God is. And this is huge, and I'm still learning this with my children, who are almost 12 and almost 15. If I say 11 and 14, they stop me. Almost 12, almost 15. I'm very careful to help them understand. I'm not telling you to follow Jesus because I'm a pastor. And I'm not asking you to follow Jesus because I want you to do something that God hasn't called you to do. I just, I know that he's right. I know that God is good. And I know you can trust that, even as you have deep, hard questions. I want you to come to me and let's talk about it. It means I come to my children and I apologize when I get a little too short. Living by faith means way more than just cramming down a set of moral code to them and asking them to follow it. It means I'm sharing with them the relationship that God has, has asked me to be in. So the righteous shall live by faith. Second, You and I should be living out the gospel boldly. And how we do that is we make disciples who make disciples. Folks, what we're supposed to be doing is is making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the command you've been given. Uh, A number of of my favorite pastors and church planters recently have been posting things like this online, and they just say things like, if the church realized she already had a mission statement, we wouldn't spend so much time making a mission statement of our own. And that's been deeply convicting for me. Because leading an organization is, is as big as what Park Hills is, and we have all these staff and all this craziness and difficulty, I get bogged down sometimes in the details, and I forget my job was to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do, right? Go make disciples. And all the earth, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. Trust me. But that's what I've called you to do. So make disciples starts with my children and my wife. And then it expands out to the young men that call me friend. And then to my staff. And to the rest of the network that I'm a part of. My goal is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And lastly, church planting is really just disciple making. When someone comes to me and they say, I'm a missionary. I'm like, no, you're a church planter. Well, no, I'm going, yes, you're, you're planting churches. You may not see it that way, but you're, you're planting churches. When someone comes to me and they say, I'm passionate about this community, well, then you're, you're, plant, you're planting a church. Well, no, I'm just leading a small group. No, you, okay, we, we get so caught up in the, the idea of the church as an organization that we miss the idea that what you are doing in the location you are in is planting a church, a group of followers of Jesus that love Jesus and want to work together to, to serve him in some way. That might eventually lead to an organizational aspect of being a church, but in the meantime, you're, you're just planting churches. You're, you're 
disciple making. And as you make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, you are planting the church. Some of those individuals, like myself, will actually plant churches. Some of them will just lead a group. And there's so many testimonies and stories I'd love to go through, but I'll stop. Because I know if we keep going, I'll be here till one and everyone will get really angry. So let me finish with this. Here's my elevator talk, my 30-second pitch for why church planting matters. And some of you know it because you're, you helped plant Christ Church in Sterling, which praise the Lord. But we're not done, folks. I don't know if you've looked around, but even in our dying communities, a gospel presence needs to be there. In fact, I would suggest it probably needs to be there more than it used to. Because as things die and people have trouble, they don't know where to go or what to look for, Jesus Christ is the answer, always has been, and always will be to the end of the day. So here's my elevator talk. Let's live by faith. Let's be people who are vicariously asking God to just lead and move us and and push us to become the people we're supposed to be. And as we live by faith, we make disciples. And as we make disciples, healthy things multiply. They just do. So, we multiply. That starts with our children, our small groups, life groups, whatever you call them, and then our churches, plant churches, because it's just healthy. It's the right way to do that. So healthy pastors pass on to other pastors what it looks like to be healthy and how to lead. Because I don't know if you know this, seminaries don't teach us super well on how to lead an organization. They teach us fantastically for how to preach, how to lead people to the gospel, how to show people what it looks like. But there are moments where things come up in churches that there's no way a seminary could prepare us for. And they're not trying to. They shouldn't be. But what is helpful is having a group of pastors that you can lean on to ask the hard questions to and have us help each other grow in this. So my final thought this morning is just a picture I'm just a little farm kid from Forreston who's got no real reason to be up here at all. Except someone boldly believed that Jesus was real to the point where they led a group of children at a VBS. And they have no idea the impact that they've made. That a pastor who just trusted that a young man was capable of doing something would say to him, you have a call in your life and you should consider doing this even to the point when he writes a crazy paper that has no bearing on reality and seems completely too pie in the sky and idealistic, he would say, why don't you come home and help make that happen? To a group of people that believed in the vision and planted a church in Winnebago. To the people who are yet to be called to plant churches in the rest of the community around us. Just imagine if every one of us boldly lived out the call that Christ has in our life day after day after day. What kind of impact could we make? How would the world look different if we just trusted Jesus with everything we have? Father, I I come to you this morning. Lord, grateful for your goodness in our life and grateful for the ways in which you have shown us again and again that you are worth following. Father, help us to be people who trust that. Help us to be people who boldly live out the call that you've put on us. That even if we think we're not a leader, we are leading something and you've given us a responsibility to live by faith in righteousness, following you, lacking shame 
in you because there's no shame to be found in you. And trusting that this gospel, this good news, this beautiful power that you have given us, that brings us salvation and leads us to live differently, Father, that you've given us all we need, that we can trust you. So, Father, I'm grateful for how you've grabbed a hold of my heart. And I'm thankful that I'm different than I was. Lord, I know you're not even close to being done with me. And Father, I think of every single person in this room listening to this or, or listening to it later in the week or, or watching it, Father, on YouTube. Who, wherever we are at, Lord, may your spirit speak to us and say, I've got a plan for you, trust me. And Lord, may we follow through and not be ashamed of the gospel you've given us. Help us to put our boldness and our hope in you and not in the things that weigh us down. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.